This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. The topic that I want to talk about today is severe sepsis and septic shock. It's a topic that gets um, um, thrown around a lot in intensive care unit when we refer to somebody when we say that they're septic. Uh, and often uh, a patient may not be septic. We have a very specific guidelines as to what defines sepsis and septic shock in a patient. Severe sepsis is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and in non-coronary care units, it is the leading cause of death. How we define sepsis has been debated for quite some time, and a variety of organizations have tried to, if we can't define it well, at least try to agree on what we are referring to as septic and septic shock. This started back in 1991 when the American College of Chest Physicians and the Society for Critical Care Medicine developed a consensus conference uh, for uh, definitions of sepsis and organ failure as well as guidelines for treatment of sepsis. And from that conference they uh, developed a definition for something we call systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS as well as sepsis and septic shock. We've all heard the silly analogy that it's not the fall that kills you from falling out of a plane but it's a sudden stop. It's very much the same way in sepsis is that in many patients it's not the actual infection of the pneumonia or the bacteremia or the peritonitis that kills them but it's how the body responds to that infection. That the, the body responds by uh, upregulating a massive inflammatory response and that's what really results in the patient's demise in multi-organ failure. Now SIRS, which is a, a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, was initially defined back in 1991 when a patient had two of the four following criteria. A temperature greater than 38 degrees centigrade or less than 36 degrees centigrade, a heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute, hyperventilation at the respiratory rate in an adult of greater than 20 breaths per minute, or a arterial uh, a PCO2 of lower than 32 millimeters of mercury, or a white count greater than 12,000 or lower than 4,000. If you had any of those conditions, you were defined at that, per, that point of having systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And you can see from that that we have a lot of patients who have temperatures of 38 degrees and a lot of patients who have tachycardia. In fact, it's almost um, by the rule that patients are on beta blockers nowadays to keep that heart rate actually less than a heart rate of 90. Now this SIRS or systemic inflammatory response syndrome often occurs in the setting of infection, but there are non-infectious conditions that cause this, particularly burns, things like acute pancreatitis, or severe trauma patients can also uh, have that. Therefore, you can have this systemic inflammatory response syndrome in the absence of an infection. Therefore, that's when we get the definition of sepsis. So for somebody to be septic or have sepsis, they had to have the systemic inflammatory response syndrome and they had to have a presumed or proven infection. Septic shock was then defined as somebody who had sepsis, uh, excuse me, severe sepsis was the next step after sepsis and that was patients who had signs of organ dysfunction and then septic shock was patients who were sepsis uh, with hypotension and uh, following adequate uh, fluid resuscitation. The key there uh, is after adequate fluid resuscitation. Just because somebody uh, was infected, became hypotensive, and while they're getting the process of fluid resuscitation initiated, that didn't particularly mean you had a patient that was in septic shock. And you can certainly see where critics would have a problem with this because it is very arbitrary. Um, you know, why a temperature of uh, 38 degrees? Why not 38.2? Why not 38.5? Why a heart rate of 90? Uh, not, why not a heart rate of 100? 
And these, um, not only were these conditions arbitrary, but they certainly were not specific to sepsis and why two out of four, not three out of four. The other problem with this is that these criteria really lacked any kind of biochemical or inflammatory markers, such as a measurement of inflammatory cytokines. So for 10 years, these uh, criteria for sepsis and septic shock stood, and then another consensus conference reconvened in 2001. And again, the, the key players in this were the Society for Critical Care Medicine, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, the American College of Chest Physician, and American uh, Thoracic Society, and the Surgical Infectious Society, so a much larger group. And they published their uh, uh, consensus uh, findings in critical care medicine in 2003. And in this new uh, criteria, there were also clinical and laboratory markers of um, what defined SIRS and sepsis. And they defined sepsis as a, a condition uh, where a patient had an infection and the patient had um, um, both clinical and laboratory criteria. And the clinical criteria include things like fever, hypothermia, tachycardia, altered mental status, arterial hypertension, decreased urine output, uh, peripheral edema, or, or even something as simple as a positive fluid balance. Laboratory criteria included leukocytosis, leukopenia, hyperbilirubinemia, hyperglycemia, increased C-reactive protein. There's something that's very specific. Procalcitonin, uh, creatinine, coagulation abnormalities, again, particularly if you're caring for trauma patients and they're getting fluid resuscitated, uh, again, very, very nonspecific. Increased cardiac output uh, and a reduced uh, mixed venous saturation. Really clear as mud. Um, I remember sitting in a meeting and somebody says, you know, if we wanted to develop, if there were 10 people sitting around, I said, well, let's order a pizza. And let's come to a consensus on what to order for a pizza. One person like a pizza with everything. One person doesn't like anchovies. One person doesn't like green peppers. One person doesn't like onions. And by the time you got around the table, you had a, a basic cheese pizza. And that would be your consensus. Um, I always remember the, the quote of Margaret Thatcher. and She says, consensus develops in the absence of leadership. And that might be perhaps too harsh of a statement. But you can clearly see that uh, with all of these great minds, we still have very, very nonspecific uh, criteria um, uh, for the uh, definition of sepsis. Well, following the 2001 consensus conference, they still left the uh, definition of severe sepsis uh, unchanged uh, as it was sepsis with organ dysfunction. The definition of septic shock, um, before you'll remember that it was defined as sepsis with hypotension despite adequate fluid resuscitation. Following the 2001 consensus conference, we had a little bit more of a, a defined um, uh, explanation, and it was defined as persistent hypotension with a systolic pressure less than 90 or a mean arterial pressure less than 70, but again, despite that adequate fluid resuscitation. And I think that's where people still fall short, is that somebody initially drops their pressure and you're initiating resuscitation. That doesn't particularly mean that the patient is in septic shock. They are in septic shock if they remain hypotensive, refractory to your fluid resuscitation. Well, let's look a little bit more about uh, uh, what patients are getting septic and under what conditions they are. Approximately half the cases of uh, uh, sepsis or septic shock actually occur outside of the intensive care unit. And that would seem to make sense because in a lot of patients, that's the reason why they're being admitted to the intensive care unit. 25% of patients who develop severe sepsis die during the hospital stay. Severe septic shock has a mortality rate of 
approaching 50%. And that's going to be a little bit variable based on what the etiology of the septic shock is, what are the organisms involved, and what's the physiological performance of the patient. We certainly can appreciate that the bugs that we are fighting nowadays are much different than the bugs we were fighting of yesteryear. Uh, when I was a resident uh, in the early 90s, we were in the intensive care unit, we were really battling a lot of the gram-negatives, E. coli, Klebsiella, and, uh, um, and uh, Pseudomonas, and today those have shifted mostly to some gram-positive organisms. What are the patients who are more at risk? Well, some of those are obvious to us, patients who are at increased risk, um, uh, patients who are, uh, excuse me, patients who are older. Uh, male patients, uh, as a gender risk factor, are at more risk for the development of severe sepsis or septic shock. There are also some cultural um, um, ethnic uh, groups that are more at risk for development of sepsis and septic shock, particularly Hispanics and African Americans uh, are um, at more at risk. And we're seeing more and more research focusing on this. Some of these are being um, uh, socioeconomic uh, or access issues, patients not perhaps having access to uh, equivalent access to health care. What are the disease processes that patients are more developed? Well, the, you pretty much could guess these. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, patients who have cancer, chronic renal failure, liver disease, and certainly diabetes. Now, if we can just take a break from all the facts and figures for a second, we have all experienced patients who have come into the hospital and have had a colon perforation, and you take them to the operating room, and they've got a, a belly full of stool, and you think this person is just going to be sick as snot postoperatively. And postoperatively, they do great. Their urine output's great. They clear their lactate. They come off the ventilator, lickety-split that first postoperative night. They don't blink an eye, and they go home in three days. And he's like, wow, that patient has some really great stock. Uh, um, and then you'll get somebody who comes in and will have something as simple as a gangrenous or perforated appendix. And they end up having a full surge and septic response. They're um, sucking up fluid. They won't clear their acid. You can't get them off the ventilator for days and days just from something from a different appendix. And we've all had uh, heard people say, well, this person's just poor protoplasm. Well, that's a nice cop-out perhaps, but what's really in play there? And, and we've looked at genetics, and some of the genetics actually deal with some ideas of genetic polymorphisms. I actually tried to investigate this in patients who have smoke inhalation. If you, for instance, if you take um, a nursing home fire, or you take two people who are in the same uh, room and have the same uh, injury from inhalation of smoke, you'll have one person who will come off the ventilator almost immediately, and you'll have another patient who has same performance uh, factors, perhaps the same diseases, and will develop a fulminant ARDS. Why do same patients with the same exposure have two dramatic differences uh, in their response? And genetics is being looked at um, more and more commonly as a potential explanation. I wrote a uh, um, a failed NIH grant uh, several years ago trying to investigate this. Uh, Sorensen and colleagues looked at this in intensive care medicine back way back in 1988, and Cook and uh, colleagues in the uh, National Review of uh, Genetics in 2001. For example, if you looked at a study of twins, uh, children whose parents died due to infections, uh, um, had uh, those patients had a 5.8-fold increased risk of dying due to infections. Uh, and now if you look at cardiovascular disease, now we know that when we do a history and physical, we've been taught since medical school, that you go in there and you ask the patient, is your, are you, is your dad alive, is your mom alive? 
Did they have a heart attack, stroke, TIAs, anything like that? And not only do we investigate whether they had that, but we're also asked to what age they had it, because we know if they had their their dad had their first heart attack before the age of 50, that puts them in a reasonably high risk. But listen to this. But when you look at at uh, um, studies of twins from children, um, or looking at their parents, uh, the increased risk of death due to cardiovascular disease is 4.5-fold if their parents died of cardiovascular disease. So we have it, and I don't know if I'm articulating this well enough, but we have it in our, our mindset that we know that the history of cardiovascular disease in our parents certainly makes us at more increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. But we don't have it in our paradigm to go and ask patients, well, did your parents have a problem with infectious diseases and did they die of an infectious death in an intensive care unit from sepsis or septic shock or an infected related complication? That is perhaps a greater predictor that the patient, the, the, the sibling or some of the sibling, but the um, offspring of that patient, if they uh, are in our intensive care unit, will have uh, a similar poor outcome. Multiple genes could interact with some of these microorganisms and, and really affect how we respond to the production of what, what could be some protective uh, cytokines like tumor necrosis factor, plasminogen activator inhibitor, and something called toll-like receptor. I had a professor of mine when I was a, a critical care fellow talk about sepsis and septic shock as a campfire in a forest. And if we had a campfire in the forest, and a hot ember gets out of that campfire and sets the forest on fire, we could sit there and put out the campfire, but we have to now deal with the forest fire. And that's, that example has always served me well when I think of sepsis, because somebody could have a source of uh, an inflammatory response or septic shock, and that could be a perforated viscous or ischemic bowel. And we have to address that campfire, that source, quickly, because if we don't address it quickly and we allow the body to develop a upregulated inflammatory response, that is our SIRS or septic shock, and that's the hot ember getting out of the campfire and setting the forest on fire. Lewis Thomas and uh, 1972, this is uh, actually reading this from a critical care um, uh, review um, text, but Lewis Thomas, 1972, proposed that sepsis is a condition of overly exuberant and uncontrolled inflammation. So again, much like the hot ember out of the forest, uh, causing the forest fire. Um, once we get the immune system kind of revved up, it's really difficult to get that genie kind of back in the bottle, and this will certainly lead to the organ failure and death. Therefore, words like uncontrolled or maladaptive or dysregulated are often used to describe the inflammatory response of the body in sepsis. And again, I'm, I'm probably mixing metaphors here, but again, we said it's not that you fall out of a, an airplane and, and are falling to earth. It's not that fall that kills you, but it's that sudden stop. And in this case, with septic, uh, severe sepsis and septic shock, it's the maladaptive response to that infection that upregulates the inflammatory response, and it's that upregulated inflammatory response that's killing our patients. And what are the mechanisms by which we have this upregulated inflammatory response? These are the cytokines, the inflammatory mediators like tumor necrosis factor, IL-1, IL-6. Well, then it seems would seem relatively obvious that if we know that things like TNF-alpha uh, and IL-1 and IL-6 are upregulating and causing this massive inflammatory response, why don't we just block them? And by blocking them, that should downregulate the inflammatory response. 
seems to make sense, but several randomized clinical trials using uh, antagonizing agents against those pro-inflammatory cytokines have really failed to show any improvement in survival. This would lead us to conclude that our explanation of perhaps these upregulated cytokines may be a little bit more complex than we currently understand. Some would argue that, well, by the time the patients get to us, that hot ember is already out of the campfire and the force is already on fire. Uh, so by giving patients antagonists or blockers to TNF-alpha or IL-1 or IL-6, it's a little bit too late. We have to be able to block that somehow. Um, prior to that upregulation. I remember working in the lab and we were looking at um, allopurinol as a xanthine oxidase inhibitor and for those of you who don't understand what that is, is this is a way that we see oxidative injury after a major um, trauma and the only way we could figure out getting it to a trauma patient is perhaps sprinkling it on their beer nuts uh, as they're drinking at the beer so we can get the patient medicated prior to injury. In addition to uncontrolled inflammation, one of the other things that we see kind of go uh, really off the rails in sepsis and septic shock is the coagulation cascade. The big buzz in this over the past couple of years has been the drug Zygris or recombinant activated protein C. These pro-inflammatory cytokines, these inflammatory mediators that I've talked about earlier, things like TNF-alpha, they upregulate the coagulation cascade. Uh, because they um, basically induce the expression of something called tissue uh, factor. And you remember from um, basic physiology when you studied your coagulation cascade, tissue factor is basically what initiates the coagulation cascade. And as tissue factor is upregulated on things like monocytes, macrophages, and endothelial cells, this upregulation of tissue factor then causes what? activation of the coagulation cascade. Again, you remember that from your physiology classes. And this leads to uh, both the production of fibrin and clot formation. As these small clots then develop in uh, the small vessels, what this does is it decreases the flow through these blood vessels. Therefore, the perfusion gets worse. And with poor perfusion, you get poor oxygen delivery and you get uh, organ dysfunction. And organ dysfunction leads to organ failure and organ failure leads to death. When we were talking about genetics, we said that there's been people looking at things like plasminogen activator inhibitor or PAI. Well, what PAI does is that impairs fibrin and lysis. Okay, so when you've got increased concentrations of PAI being produced in sepsis and you get these little clots being formed, the little clots cannot break down and therefore you've got decreased perfusion and no way really to try to reverse these little clots. There is cross-reactivity between this massive inflammatory response and this upregulation of the coagulation cascade. We've already talked uh, several times, we've mentioned TNF-alpha and IL-6. We haven't talked about IL-8, but TNF-alpha, IL-6, and IL-8 actually upregulate um, the endothelial cells um, for the release of hyperactive, ultra-large von Willebrand factor. And it really inhibits the cleavage and clearance of these prothrombotic agents. Though we are getting some more insight into uh, the role of the coagulation cascade in sepsis and perhaps the cross-reactivity with inflammatory pathways, we're not entirely clear how drugs like Zygris improve survival in sepsis. Now that we've talked about some of the background and uh, basic science behind sepsis, we need to focus our attention on the treatment of sepsis.
The Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a, a consensus and initiative of several large organizations, namely the European Society for Intensive Care Medicine, the International Sepsis Forum, and Society of Critical Care Medicine. And the objective of this large cooperative group is to, uh, by looking at their website, building awareness of sepsis, improving the diagnosis of sepsis, increasing the use of appropriate treatment, educating healthcare professionals, improving post-intensive care unit care of septic patients, and developing guidelines of care. It's a rather Herculean undertaking, to undertaking that can actually have really profound impact uh, on the outcome of our patients. And remember, we've said what a large number of our patients in, that die in intensive care units are dying of sepsis, septic shock, and complications thereof. Uh, there's a rather extensive website that one can find at www.survivingsepsis.org. And the surviving sepsis uh, guidelines are actually uh, available there for download and in and, and, and several languages. The first set of guidelines uh, were published in 2004 in Critical Care Medicine, Volume 32, pages 858 to 873. And as I've said, you can grab those off of their website as well as uh, uh, keep current uh, with uh, changes. We are expecting uh, a revision of a, um, a new set uh, very soon. It's probably fair to say that those uh, revisions are perhaps even overdue. If you go back earlier, we keep talking about our uh, campfire in the in the forest, and that if we have a campfire and a hot ember gets out and it sets the forest on fire, then we have massive destruction of the forest, and that is equivalent to our sepsis. Uh, the campfire representing our initial source of infection and the massive forest fire that follows by not being able to control that uh, campfire is the septic uh, response. When we approach a patient who is in a, a septic shock or suffering from severe sepsis, there really is a three-pronged approach to these patients. The first is the obvious, and that is source control. Throwing all the fluids and vasopressors and antibiotics at a patient is useless if we do nothing to obtain control of the source of the sepsis, be it a gangrenous viscous, something like a gangrenous appendix or a torse colon, uh, an abscess in the abdomen uh, or in the pneumonia. So source control is number one. Next would be uh, antimicrobial management, getting the right antibiotics that are sensitive uh, to the organism that we're treating and are able to penetrate the tissue in which we're treating. And nextly would be the hemodynamic resuscitation. Choosing the right antibiotics, choosing them in a timely fashion, and making sure that they have the right spectrum cannot be uh, um, uh, uh, overstated as a, as a real priority. The mortality rate increases for every hour of delay in getting the right antibiotics in the patient. And again, appropriate antibiotic therapy is only appropriate if you've got the underlying source under control. It seems reasonably obvious, perhaps to you and I, that source control is a, a key element of this, but it can be frequently overlooked, particularly in cases of like a, a, a um, pneumonia-associated empyema, something like a decubitus ulcer, some clostridia difficile colitis, and in those three cases, uh, control of the uh, uh, bacterial empyema will require a chest tube, or perhaps even decortication. Uh, if we're dealing with loculated effusions and uh, all the loculations need to be adequately drained, decubitus ulcer, we would need to adequately debride the, um, the carotid tissue, and perhaps a fourth time taking the patient to the operating room rather than just doing a simple bedside debridement by a surgical intern. Uh, and uh, clostridial difficile colitis would require um, a, a total abdominal colectomy. The other paradoxical element of this in regarding to C. diff colitis is the actual elimination 
of uh, uh, some antibiotics are initiating the problem, uh, such as the antibiotics that would drive the C. diff colitis. If a patient uh, has uh, infected uh, implants uh, in the form of a, a total catheter or a central venous uh, line or even uh, something um, um, like a, a implant, those would have to be removed as well. In cases of necrotizing fasciitis, getting the patient to the operating room promptly to remove uh, rapidly any necrotic uh, tissue certainly improves uh, outcomes. Once we've taken the patient to the operating room, do not feel that this is a final and definitive um, approach, particularly in some of the procedures that we've talked about, like with a C. diff colitis. Uh, hopefully, if you've taken out all the colon, that should be enough. But particularly in necrotizing fasciitis um, or an ischemic bowel, you may feel that you've adequately removed the inciting uh, necrotic tissue. But um, 12 or 24 hours later, the tissue, uh, there can be additional necrotic material, and that would require uh, taking the patient back to the operating room for further debridement. It seems obvious getting the right antibiotics would be a good thing, but in up to 20% of cases, 20%, one out of five times, the initial choice of antibiotics is incorrect based on the subsequent culture and sensitivity. And the, uh, the risk of uh, selecting the wrong antibiotics is increased when the patient could be, uh, have uh, resistant uh, uh, microorganisms or the patient's not suspected of having received prior antibiotics. So the things you need to ask before you start writing for your antibiotics is, has this patient been on antibiotic therapy before this? Are they a readmission? Uh, or if somebody was in the hospital and now they're being readmitted. So what we thought might be a community-acquired pneumonia, uh, though the patient's being just now admitted, in, in reality could be a, a hospital-acquired pneumonia, something a little bit more virulent like an acinetobacter, not virulent but more resistant like an acinetobacter or an MRSA. Is the patient coming from a nursing home or some sort of rehabilitation facility where the patient doesn't have a naive, uh, an, uh, a naive uh, flora of organisms? If you choose your antibiotics poorly, authors like Koloff and Chess in 1999 and Krieger in American Journal of Medicine in 1980 have shown a markedly increased rate of mortality in those patients who are bacteremic as well as those in septic shock. And other authors have shown the same kind of findings in patients with nosocomial pneumonia. So be mindful of what organisms you, you're potentially targeting as well as perhaps the antibiograms of um, those potential organisms in your each uh, institution as well as in the intensive care unit um, uh, um, that you're treating the patient. What the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends is that you start out very broad with your antibiotic therapy and then taper that down following the results of our gram stains, our cultures, and our sensitivities. For example, you may find somebody who you suspect has a gram-negative bacteremia. You're not sure of that. The patient's acting septic. And you may start them on an antibiotic regimen such as imipenem, amicacin, and vancomycin. Clearly, the amicacin and the imipenem are uh, targeting what you suspect is a gram-negative. You're adding the vancomycin because the patient could have a gram-positive bacteremia, perhaps with something like an MRSA. And then in 24 hours, you may get the fact that there's only gram-negative rods in the blood. You can make the vancomycin go away. And as you get that gram-negative rod speciated, uh, and you find out that it's a, 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 a gram-negative rod E. coli, and it's pan-sensitive, then you would change over your imipenem and amicacin, your so-called gorillacillins, something a little bit more targeted, like maybe a, 
something as simple as ANSEF. Several retrospective studies have shown that when you choose the wrong antibiotic for a bacteremic patient with septic shock, that you have increased rates of mortality. Again, these are Krieger and American Journal of Medicine in 1980, Young and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1977, Romero-Vives in uh, Clinical Infectious Disease 1995, Gwen and colleagues in Archives of Internal Medicine in 1995, and Varagas and colleagues in uh, Annals of Internal Medicine in 2001. Take-home point. Start your antibiotics broad and powerful and make sure that you're covering any potential organism that could be making the patient septic. But none of these trials have shown that early narrowing of your antibiotics results in any detrimental uh, effect to the host. Okay, so keep in mind, start out strong and, and narrow and taper quickly. Avoid all and any delays in your antibiotic therapy. It would seem to make sense that when we see a patient and we think that they're septic shock and we write an order uh, for uh, our hypothetical patient, we give them the imipenem, uh, amicacin, uh, and the vancomycin. That order just does not immediately transcribe into the fact that the patient's going to get the antibiotics in the next five minutes. The importance of antibiotic timing and prompt delivery of the antibiotics is greatly underappreciated, underappreciated I think certainly by physicians. Uh, we have this concept that we write an order or enter an order in a computer, which is our case at Vanderbilt, and magically the uh, pharmacology fairies or whatever, the, the drug magically appears uh, on the counter at the patient's bedside within 30 seconds glistening with uh, glitter and fairy dust and the antibiotic immediately starts to hang and the tubing is primed and there's enough pumps and there's you have enough access and there's no compatibility problems and the uh, antibiotic is administered uh, within two minutes of our writing the order. Here's a news flash. That's not the way the real world works. Delay in antibiotics results in death. Meehan, Journal of the American Medical Association in 1997, Arugi and colleagues uh, in Chess in 2002. A Medicare database study of 14,000 elderly patients hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia showed an increased rate of death when appropriate antibiotics were delayed eight hours or more after hospitalization. A similar observation was made for patients who developed ventilator-associated pneumonia with a delay in antibiotics increasing the risk of death 7 0.7 times. After you select the antibiotics and you write the order, the order obviously goes to the pharmacy where the bags are mixed and transported to the patient's uh, unit and then eventually to the patient's bedside. You have to make sure that we have vascular access, that we have pumps, and the nurse has to administer the medication. And in our modern healthcare system, these are all reasonably complex steps. We as physicians uh, greatly, in my opinion, overlook uh, all these nuances in the patient's care and a delay can occur at any point in time. This brings me down to a very simple point that I try to teach all of our residents is that any order you put in is a three-stage process. When you order a medication at noon for something like an antibiotic, you need to make sure that that order was carried out and it, we're moving uh, down the path. If, so if you order the, your, this triple antibiotics in a hypothetical patient, you want to double back and make sure in a reasonably short period of time that the order was seen by the nurse. Better yet, tell the nurse that you've got the order and look, I'm writing for these antibiotics. This is important that we get these going. Let me know what I can do to assist you in this. Coming back, 
finding out where the drugs came up from pharmacy. If the drugs haven't come up from the pharmacy, getting on the horn, trying to expedite things, making sure that there's access, making sure that we are able to get those antibiotics into the patient. And then once we've given the antibiotics, what is the, the uh, effect of those medications that we're administering? Is it achieving our desired goal? The next thing we have to ask is, are we giving the appropriate doses of antibiotics? Due to increased volumes of distribution and uh, decreased clearance rates, several studies have demonstrated that suboptimal dosing of antibiotics is common in intensive care unit patients with sepsis. Pharmacodynamics uh, describes the relationship between antibiotic concentrations in serum to the tissue site of uh, infection and its biological effect. This is perhaps outside of the scope of the talk that we're giving right now, but we all know that when we're treating meningitis, for instance, that there are certain antibiotics that are able to cross the blood-brain barrier. You just can't pick any antibiotic. Well, you have to be mindful, for instance, that if you're treating pneumonia, lung is tissue that's reasonably difficult to penetrate. And when our infectious disease colleagues often round on our patients, we have, uh, we're consulting with them in resistant organisms, one of the things they're always uh, telling us is that we need to make sure that we're giving high enough doses of medications that we're actually penetrating the lung tissue to actually result in a treatment of our pneumonia. Antibiotic killing of bacteria is really characterized as either time dependent or concentration dependent. Most of our antibiotics, including the beta-lactams, vancomycin, are time dependent in their activity. What this means is that bacterial kill is closely related to antibiotic serum concentrations for which the greatest duration is spent exceeding the minimum, <laughs> the minimum inhibitory concentration. Now the MIC, or the minimum inhibitory concentration, is that dose of a particular antibiotic where we start to see bacterial killing. And in drugs like the beta-lactams, the vancomycin, the time-dependent drugs, we want that time above that MIC to be as great as possible. Now in contrast, the antimicrobial activity of drugs like the fluoroquinolones, the aminoglycosides, amphotericin, their effectiveness is characterized by a ratio of the maximum serum concentration over the minimum inhibitory concentration. So this is concentration-dependent killing. And the highest possible doses of these antibiotics correlate with, anti with a microorganism kill. I want to draw to conclusion this first part of this talk on sepsis. Um, and on the next uh, element of this talk, this next podcast, I'm going to talk about some of the hemodynamic resuscitation strategies, um, use of the different vasopressors, some of the controversy about corticosteroids. Everybody thinks, seems to think that corticosteroids uh, cures everything, including the heartbreak of psoriasis, and that they should be used routinely in sepsis. Um, some of the uh, uh, data from the prowess study and use of Zygris, that we've already mentioned a little bit, as well as uh, the role of uh, euglycemia, which is a, a podcast we've already posted on the website. So that concludes this podcast. My name is Jeff Guy uh, from Vanderbilt University. I'm the director of the burn, uh, the, uh, uh, burn ICU there, and uh, this is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. Thank you.